The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Alliance Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. As always, you got Pootie here. Without Pastor Nate today, no P-Nate in the studio. That's okay. You know, he's had a little bundle of joy, a new baby girl um, who we can now share. His name is Harper, um, who we are very delighted to welcome into the Rebel family. Problem, though, that means Nate's super busy with uh, three kids under the age of four. Um, so he isn't going to be here this week. So I one-upped him. I brought somebody who's even better than Pastor Nate. I brought my special, wonderful wife, the H. Heather is in the studio with me to record, and she didn't know she was doing it until she woke up this morning. So that's right. <laughs> Welcome, H. How you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks. Yeah, I'm going to hear about this for a long time. I think. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. So we're here. It's, spring is is going. We're about to lose our tech guy off to Israel for a little while. So the rebels are going to record a couple episodes and hopefully hit them out. So it's just that, just me and my lady today. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Um, so we're going to start it off with some rebel news. But before we get into that, I just do want to remind you that to check out our Patreon website um, that has just launched. There's lots of great content and lots of great things on there for you guys to enjoy. Uh, we are part of the Rebel Alliance Media Network, um, along with our friends, the Awakening Reformation Podcast with Grant and Erica Van Brimmer. We have a great new podcast that's just come out with Ben Emery. Check out our blogs done by Erica, Andrew, and Ben, as well as Fathers of Faith podcast that comes out every week as well. So check it out. There's tons going on at the Rebels. We're very active on Facebook, very after active on social media. So if you guys have any questions, feel free to hit us with those things this week and or over the time. And we always like to get back because we love to hear the listener engagement. So I'm now going to hit some Rebel News up. This one blew my mind. This came out this week. And I, uh, I'm just going to read the headline to you. And then I basically want to have a quick chat about it. So and an Indiana court rules that the sale of aborted babies is now illegal. Amen. It, it should be illegal. This is something that should, should have been illegal for a long time. What blows my mind is that they had to go to court to say that this should now become illegal, that this wasn't always illegal in the first place, which meant up until March 18th, you were allowed to sell aborted baby parts in the state of Indiana. That blows my mind. Okay, so here's my take on this. For so long, the abortion industry has been purporting itself as a women's rights movement, as a movement of choice, as a movement of, for health, for all of these things. And the more and more things that become, as we become more aware, as courts are now investigating things like abortion and abortion clinics, we start seeing practices that have been going on for decades and decades in these abortion mills, selling baby parts, killing like Kerbert Gosling did, killing babies after they were born, babies who were attempted to be aborted and 
and survived and then were just put to death. The more and more these things come to light, the more and more we should see that this is an industry that's funded and predicated on basically genocide. We're basically seeing hundreds and hundreds of millions of babies being put to death for no good reason other than selfish reasons, other than it's inconvenient, all disguised and protected by law behind veiled false pretenses like women's rights, like health and all these things. And I think the more these stories come to light about baby parts being sold, the better it is for the pro-life movement because the more and more asinine any other option seems. Does it make sense? Yeah. What were the body parts? Like who was selling them and who, like who was buying them and who was, where were they yeah, being yeah. used for? I, that's, a, that's a tremendously good question. I, I would love to know what the point of, the, of selling the body parts of aborted babies were. The one example of it being sold was for research, but this wasn't medical facilities that were buying these cadavers. It was just regular people, um, which is actually a level five felony in the state of Indiana. It's actually very disgusting that this was a, a practice that was happening. And what's crazy to me is that this had to go to court to get ruled as illegal. If a living baby person was put to death, it's it's absolutely criminal to sell body parts to a person or anything like that. Nobody would even think to question that it's illegal to sell corpse. But because it's an aborted baby and there's so much misunderstanding of what that actually means in, in the laws because the liberals and the uh, lefties have kind of been abusing this whole idea for so long that now it's it's come to the point where we can sell the, the baby parts and, and it be something that has to actually go to court to become illegal is the word I'm looking for. It just actually makes me disgusted. I'm having a hard time even I'm getting it out. So well, it sounds like there's other places still doing this if there's just one place that's saying this is not okay? This is just the state of Indiana, so I don't know if it's something that's uh, illegal already in other states or just this state. Yeah, that's something we definitely should uh, find out about because that's disgusting. Um, and it was actually the University of Indiana that was sued because they were one, one of the ones using the, the body parts, and this just is just disgusting. This is why, shocking. Yeah, this is why it's so important for Christians to understand this, this issue. This is an issue that's very prevalent, very on the front footstep of our, of our society today. I've even had a conversation within the last couple of weeks with a Christian who said, well, no, Christians shouldn't be protesting, calling abortion murder. We should be loving the mothers as they come out of after they've had abortions. And where I agree with that, I think Christians should be loving people. I think we should be trying to build up those people who have committed that sin. But by no means should we be stopping calling it murder and, and trying to end the practice. We have to do both of those things. We have to call sin, sin when we see it. And we also have to show forgiveness where forgiveness is needed to the people who have committed that sin. And that's, I think, what makes Christianity so unique versus any other religion is we're the only ones that are equipped to do both things. We're the only religion who's equipped to accurately refer to something as sin, but then also equally equipped to give the grace that's needed and to show grace and show love and show compassion that's needed on the, the sinner. And I think that's something that needs to be done. It doesn't make it right to say, I'm going to love the sinner, but you need to call the sin what it is. Sin, it's murder. When we're putting babies to death in the womb, that's just as much of a murder if I picked up a nine millimeter and shot somebody in a, in a bank or in a convenience store. It's the exact same thing. We're taking a life away from somebody. That's an affront to God. When the first murder happened in scripture, 
The Bible says that the blood from Abel cried out to him. Imagine the sound that it must be, the deafening sound of 60 million babies a year being put to death in the United States. We continually say this on this podcast. Like We encourage Christians to get involved, write to your MPs, protest, do whatever we can to get this thing stopped, this abomination destroyed. I don't even know what else to say about that. So let's move on to another piece of uh, rebel news. I want to get your take on this one, Hev. This one's interesting to me. A survey came out, and I found this on uh, Christian Headlines. Um, it came out just on Friday that basically said moms are influencing their children for Christ. Dads, not so much. So the survey basically went on to say, now all, all surveys, you know, who are they surveying, all that, all that stuff. But they basically found in this study that 68% of U.S. Christians grew up with somebody who influenced their faith would say it was their mother that influenced them to be a Christ follower, to follow Christ, and that their father, very little percentage of that. First, I want to say, well, yeah, mothers have a very particular point in our in our faith. We learn a ton from our mothers. We learn an astronomical amount. I've, I've, I witness our fr- friends who have kids, and their mother does a ton of the teaching. I don't want to say that's wrong. I'm not saying anything about that. But what I think's the shocking and the sad part, the thing that I, I read that when I read this survey that didn't sit well with me was that where are the men? Where are the men that are leading their homes to lead their families to Christ? If you're somebody who grew up and your mom's only the one, the only one who's influencing you for Christ, we need a generation to come up now where men are the ones that are leading their homes that men are the spiritual leadership in their home, that they're leading their families, leading their wife, leading their children in the spiritual practices in in the home. The reason I said I wanted to get your take on this is that you grew up in a home that did model this quite well, that had, you know, your father as a great man was an elder at his church. Actually, he's an elder at our church now. Your mother was a great servant of, of Christ. And with that, now you have two siblings who both follow the Lord. One of them has kids of their own uh, right now who are also raising those kids up to fear and honor the Lord. And so you see when the man takes the, the spiritual leadership in the home, you can see how it trickles down throughout generations and makes an, makes an impact. And the, the thing that made this survey so impactful is that this shows that men aren't doing this in our, in our home. So what are your thoughts on that? I guess my first question to that would be what they think that that looks like, because I would say, yeah, I would feel like I learned more from my mom, but it's not like my dad wasn't doing it. So I think that it was just the role and who talked to me more about that stuff. It was my mom. It doesn't mean my dad wasn't doing it. He just did it in different ways. So when it comes to people being asked that question, maybe there's a little more moms saying a little bit more to their kids, having those quiet moments of prayer, and the dads are doing it in a different way which just doesn't happen to show itself with the kids and how that they're responding to that kind of survey. It's also obviously, I mean, when you think about, usually it is moms that stay home with their kids, so they're they're there with them a lot more. Even now there's, you know, with homeschooling and things like that, it's usually the mom that's home with them. So yeah, I think that that survey, again, who's being asked, there's definitely men that we know that, go into both ways where they're not doing much. And then there's the others where I think that they are. And if you're to ask the kids, I mean, it'd be interesting to know their take on that too. I think the challenge with that is that men just need to basically step up to realize that they they have an equal, like you said, it looks different than what the mother's impact is going to be because 
in most homes, if the mom's home with the kid, the dad is probably at work or whatnot. It takes a level of leadership to be somebody who's actively going home and spending those that extra time with their kids rather than watching Netflix or whatever with their free times once they're finished work, you know, going out or whatnot. They need to come home and, and display that leadership so that you see that healthy balance. Um, and then, so I think the challenge there is, again, for men to step up and lead their homes because as Christ is the head of the church, the man is the head of the household, and we need to see more men who are worthy of that title because to be honest that survey to me says that there are a lot of women who are trying to fill both roles and that's not what they should be having to do so you're not honoring your wives if you're leaving her to have to be the spiritual leader and the household leader on her own without your without your support so men step up that's basically i think what that survey says and i hope with podcasts like this one and other podcasts and more faithful men getting into the pulpit we might see this correct balance come back in our society because if you look back 50 years ago we weren't having the same problems with gender and all of these sexual confusions when there's a good relationship and a healthy relationship between the father and their daughters and a father and their son we don't see these same issues but when the father's absent a lot of these issues arise and i'm probably going to get flamed for saying that but i'm okay with it so let's move on we'll take a break and then we'll come back with five traits of what a healthy christian is On June 1st, join the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity in Grimsby, Ontario for a full-day event called Love Thy Body, a conference on humanity, sexuality, art, and God, with special guest speaker Nancy Piercy and EICC founder Joe Boot. Don't miss this event at the site of high-impact training seminars, including the Worldview Leadership Camp for Youth and the Runner Academy for Students and Young Professionals. Register for these events by visiting www.ezrainstitute.ca. Welcome back. Um, So as I said right before the break, we got a lot of questions about how to identify traits of somebody who's actively following Christ. Um, It's something we see often in books like how to grow and things like this books over this about these this subject about what does a healthy christian look like and i think the bible gives us a pretty good definition of what that looks like so i'm i've pulled out some things and i think i've come up with five traits of what i think a healthy christian looks like and how you can identify somebody in your church who's a healthy christian so the first one i wanted to bring up is assurance I think a healthy Christian is somebody who is assured in their salvation, who understands and trusts the promises of scripture, who understands that their salvation isn't because of their works. It isn't something that they've earned. It's not something they've decided. They understand that they were chosen and they were saved by grace and grace alone. It's not because they are special. It's not because they've done anything to deserve it or earn it. They were saved completely without works. Well, they were saved by Christ's works, not their own. The only thing that they've contributed to their salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So I think that would be the first piece of what I would say a healthy Christian is. It's somebody who understands that principle of assurance, which is what the whole book of First John is really about. The whole book of First John is about writing so that Christians would know that they have assurance. They wouldn't be deceived about what eternal life is, that they would understand what their salvation is and what it isn't, um, and that they would know that they have eternal life. Because once you understand and you can grasp that you can't be separated from the love of God once you're in and once you've been called by him, It changes the way you live your life. It changes the way you live in this world and the way you 
think and act um, because Jesus is eternal life and he's the one that offers it to us, right? So I think that's the first real thing that I would say in terms of a healthy trait of a Christian would be assurance in our salvation. The second trait of a healthy Christian would be daily devotions. The second thing that I think would you identify somebody who is actively following Christ would be they have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Somebody who is desiring every day to wake up, to pour themselves into the word of God, to read, to study, to understand those truths. They understand the promises of God. They understand that they're not saved by works, but they are hungering and thirst to grow more in their faith, to spend time in the word, do those things. How often like, do we have the conversation with somebody and be like, How, how's your week going? And I'm always shocked by the amount of people who say, oh, it was good. My devotions were, have been amazing. I started my day today with prayer and reading the word, and today became an excellent day. So that's, I think, the second main thing. To really be a healthy Christian, you need to be focused on your devotions. That doesn't just mean, you know, waking up every day and just, oh, I'm going to spend 30 minutes in my word and then move on with the rest of my day. What we mean by that is somebody who's devoted to growing in their faith. So they're wanting to read books. They, they study the word of God. They're actively thinking about the word of God, getting in discussions about the word of God, actively pursuing those things. And I think I just want to add to that by, because some mornings it's actually tough to get into that routine and you don't feel like doing it. And I think another point would be, you know, you're doing it because you're being obedient. So, I mean, that shouldn't be every day. And I find that the days that you wake up and you don't actually feel like doing it are the most rewarding because, you know, usually there's a reason that you don't want to do it or you feel like, you know what, I'm waking up feeling pretty energized on my own here. But those are the days that you need him and it comes through later in the day. And on the other side, when you ask someone, how's your week been or how's your day been? And they say, it's not very good. The follow-up question should be, you know, how is your devotional life going? And usually there's a tie in there with how those two correlate. It does for us. I know when we've had a, a bad week and usually it ties with, well, my devotional life was pretty much non-existent this week, or it was pretty quick, or it was just in the routine of it. So I think that both hands show, you know, and if you're a true good friend, you can ask that question and get an honest answer because it's a humbling thing to say, you know, you've had a bad week. And then the reason why being it's kind of on you that you didn't decide to open your word and spend quality time reading and in prayer. One conversation Pastor Nate and I have often had was when we, we talk about counseling in the church and we, we make the joke in kind of a, a flippant way, but um, about how many people would you have to actually counsel if everybody just took the word seriously, if they just went to the word and spent time in, time in the word, that number would drop drastically. I'm not saying it would be non-existent because there are things that come up that you need extra, extra wisdom, extra counseling, but um, the amount of people who try to white knuckle their faith is crazy to me that they, as, um, who was it that we were listening to? Ravi Zachariah said, often you can let your faith carry you or you can be carrying your faith. And so what he means by that is like, 
people who are often like, you know, having to carry their faith or people who are trying to have faith without ever spending any time on their knees in prayer or in the word, learning about God, being edified by the word, having it poured into their heart, speaking to them, speaking through the scriptures. There's a reason like the book of John opens with the word became flesh. It wasn't like the video became, <laughs> became flesh. It didn't say, and the, this idea and mentality became flesh. No, the word became flesh. Yeah. There's a reason we've been given a book to study and a book to read that speaks to us because we need to be using this book. We need to have this book as our authority because that's where the words of life are contained. That's where we learn about Jesus. That's where we know Jesus. That's how we communicate with what God wants us to understand. There's a reason God wrote a book, an instruction book of how to live our lives. You can't live your life properly if you're not in that book understanding how to do it and how to apply it. Yes, you could get fed when you go to church. We'll come to that. That's an essential an essential part is to listen to and listening to your pastor being put under your authority of a pastor. But that's one hour of a week. We live 24 hours, seven days a week without the constant reaffirming of, of what the God, God's word says. You're going to be the one carrying your faith rather than let your faith carry you through your week. Does it make sense? Yeah. And I think also he's going to give you what you need for the day. So you can't expect Amen. a sermon, which could be pretty great to carry you through a whole seven days. He will give you what you need for that day. And it starts with opening up your Bible and, you know, starting with him every day. Amen. The third trait, and this one kind of goes with that daily devotion. This one I actually think is often a result of a, of a healthy assurance and a healthy daily devotion. I think once you have those two things down, this one is more of like the fruit of that. And this is that you're an active member of your church community. You're somebody who is serving in the church. You're somebody who's actively involved in the ministry and the vision of your church. Maybe not in leadership laying out the vision, but I mean like you're you're backing what the vision of your church is. You're, you're working with whatever gifts you've been given, whatever gifts God has laid before you and using that to build the body of Christ. I also think it's somebody who's actively involved in small groups or a discipleship relationship. Like I'm not saying there's a there's a formula like some small groups might look different in your church than they do in my church, but we are called to make disciples, so that is a, an essential part of what an active church member in actual church community looks like. Somebody who's actively trying to make disciples for the glory of God or being discipled, that's also part of it because I think we all need to be discipled as well. And the other thing is I think it also means that you need to be somebody who's not an accuser of your church. Somebody who isn't always, always just seeing the negative things in your church, looking out and trying to see all the flaws everybody else has around you. Somebody who's an encourager rather than an, an accuser. Somebody who's building up people in the church, edifying the body of Christ, challenging people where, when they need to be challenged, but encouraging people when they need to be encouraged. I think that's a very active member. And I, I wanted to use the word membership because I think church membership is something that's often overlooked in a healthy Christian's walk. How many times in our society today do we hear... I'm a Christian. I'm just not, I'm just not a member of a church. I follow Jesus on my own rules. I don't subscribe to a church or any, or one denomination. I think, and I think that's missing, missing the point. Being a church member, being somebody who is submitted to the authority of, of a local church, your elders and your pastor shows that you're part, you're willing to be part of this grand scheme. Like, like we are supposed to be with the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. I've said that a couple times already. Now Christ is the head of the church. All of our churches should submit to him and we would submit to our authority. When it comes to the membership, I mean that I think 
shows just how much of the world is influencing without realizing. I mean, when you think of uh, the breakdown of marriage, I mean, that is something that you're called to be accountable for. And that's what being a church member is as well. But I would say the world would tell you, you don't need to worry about those kinds of things. You know, I think of some of my friends that I know that are non-believers and they're in relationships, living with each other and having children and will not get married. That's something that they do not believe that they need, but they've spoken that they're okay with just, you know, but there's nothing to keep them accountable to that. They're just saying that they'll stick to it. So I feel like hearing that, like his marriage, I mean, even though it does break down their divorce rate, there's just a lot of people coming up young age that just aren't going to get married. They don't think it's so for them to be told that you should become a member of a church. I mean, it's just not, that's just not what the society here is pushing anymore. That kind of commitment. Because of the sin in us, we naturally want to reject all authority. Um, We don't naturally seek out people to be put in charge over us. It's not something that comes easy to people. It didn't come easy. I don't think it comes easy to anyone, but we're wired to have that as a, as part of our DNA. It's the sin in us that makes us reject that we're wired to be followers of our King. We follow a King. Christ is the King. We're wired to be in submission to him. Who is a humble servant. <laughs> who was a humble servant. Absolutely. But we see people who are so wired to think that they're in charge of everything, right? So they reject all notions of actually having to be committed, like you said, to anything specifically. And I think, I think they're missing the point in that area. And I would, I would say if anybody's listening to this, who isn't a church member or who isn't actively serving in their church, this should be a wake up call to think if you're actively saying you're a Christian and actively openly submitting to the Lord Lordship of Christ, then you need to be actively submitting to an elders board who you will willingly submit to underneath. And that's a biblical principle. We can, we actually had a church membership episode, I think a while ago, so we don't need to rehash all the arguments about it, but it is something that I think is vital. And the next point I think to have a trait of a healthy Christian, and this is one openly, I would say this is the one out of this list is this is the one that I, I think hit the closest to home with me, which is it's a vibrant prayer life. I'm going to speak probably like what I think a lot of Christians are like. Yes, I pray. I'm good at saying grace. I'm good at good at praying when I wake up. I'm good at praying at the end of my day. And I'm really, really, really good at praying whenever I need something. Yes. I'm really, really good at praying to God, help me overcome this, help me do this, help me do this. I need you for this. I need you for this. I need you for this. And I'm really good at when people say, hey, pray for me for this. Absolutely. I can pray for you for that because I know to do it. We're very, very good, I think, in the church at using God like we use our parents, where I'll go to him when I need something, when I need my taps fixed, when I need my my insulation done. I'm going to call my dad and I'm going to be like, Papa, help me out. You know what I mean? Like, or if I need something, I'm going to go to your dad and be like, Hey, help me out with this. I need your help. What we aren't so great at is understanding that Jesus is also our King. And so if you think about that for a moment, when somebody of royalty is around, how do you react? So throughout history, when, when a King entered a city, they had parades and you would see children trying their hardest to get just a glimpse of the King. When a celebrity walks into a room, every single person in that room is blown away and just wants even the slightest bit of attention from that celebrity. When you see your fa- a famous athlete, you're blown away by the fact that this famous person is right in front of you. The reason I point out that is that Christ is the king. 
But we so often forget that we have the opportunity to be in the same room at the same time as the, as the king of the universe. If we think about the story of Nicodemus who climbed up the tree to see, I may have got that name wrong, climbed up the tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus walking into the city. That's how we all should be like when we come to prayer. We have the ability to enter into the throne room of God, to kneel before him and pray to the king of the universe. And the best part is he's, he doesn't just listen to us. He wants to hear from us. But so often we only come to him when we need something. We don't come to him when we just want to praise him, when we just want to be spending time with him, when we just want to be in his presence. And I think we've talked about this. There's a difference when you see somebody who's a prayer warrior who yeah. realizes that they overcome every struggle in their lives on their knees. Yeah. When their first reaction to difficulty and struggle and strife comes into life is to like, okay, let's knuckle down, shut the door to my prayer closet and spend time face down before God. And you see the difference that that makes in those people's lives. Yeah. Right. You see that time that they spend when they're doing that. Right. So any thoughts on that? I would agree with you. I can think of one, uh, one friend in particular who is an ultimate prayer warrior. And I remember being with her when I think there was something going on with, I don't know, like, let's say a car issue or something like that. And it was something so, I want to say mundane. It's not something that if I were to have had this issue, would I have immediately uh, had a response like she did, which was, well, we'll have to pray about this. Well, and I remember thinking at the time, because she just takes those every day. Uh, I mean, I don't, I haven't asked specifically for how long she prays, but my guessing is, is it's a significant amount of time and in different areas, like there's different ways that there's great prayer calendars out there. I don't know if um, anyone ever wants to look those up, but it basically has you pray outwardly, not just inwardly. So you have different things that you pray for daily, which kind of keeps you in the realm of what you're actually there for which is not just all about you. So when those moments come up, it automatically comes to mind that you should be praying. And it's not just, it's an everyday, because you do need him more than you think you do. But to have that kind of reaction, and I think we would we would see things a lot more clearer if we were to think that way more often, quicker. Like, just think about that. If you had a situation, you wouldn't be just lashing out at the person that you love the most in that household. You'd be thinking, you know what, what I need to do right now is pray. And that's just, I think, would save a lot of arguments and relationships because of how we lash out immediately, because that's not our first thought. So when you have someone like that, that's around you, that you know is a prayer warrior, there's, there is a difference in how that they overcome things in their life. And even if it seems like, that's kind of a weird way to just put a mundane thing. I think it says a lot about what their focus is. Yeah. I like that you brought up the prayer calendar because that reminds me of like praying the right way and praying for his will to be done and, and things like that. It's such a foreign concept to us because we are so used to treating God like he's our dad and like he's our parents. So it is something that can be worked on. It's something that I think Christians often don't think that they can improve. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a weird thing to think like, oh, he's a good prayer or she's a good prayer. You know what I mean? It is something you can improve. It's not the words that you're saying that can improve. It's the practices, right? And so you mentioned like the prayer calendar. I remember when you got that prayer calendar, how your prayer life changed. I remember seeing that and what, and being like, oh, that's awesome. And you know what I mean? There are things you can do. There are things you can do to practice praying, to practice getting in that habit of before I do anything, I need to spend time in prayer. I don't remember exactly the Christian, if it was Spurgeon or somebody else who the more and more busy he got in his day, 
the more and more time he set aside for prayer. So it ended up being like he would pray an hour in the morning and then go by the end of his ministry. It was like, I'm praying for five hours a day and doing the rest of my work in three because he realized that prayer was the most important part of what he was going to be doing in that day. If Christians started to do this part really, really well, I think we'd start to see a lot of the change that we want to see in the world, not because of the world would change around, but we would change in the world, if that yeah. makes sense. Does it make, well, um, it would change you because I know, again, on this prayer calendar, first of all, the outwardly part, like, I don't think active Christians pray daily for their pastor. Well, it says right on there, the specific now in this way, it's a 30 day calendar. So there's certain days where you pray for a specific thing in their life. So it's not just a generic pray for your pastor. It's pray for this part this day, pray for your pastor's wife, pray for their children. It's very specific on certain days. And then for you, the prayers that you pray for yourself, the scary one that I still remember was pray for humility for me this day. Well, that's not going to show itself in a way that you really want to see, <laughs> but that's something that it taught you to pray and you to almost tremble at thinking, please show me humility today. But there were things like that that would put you into a way that you would never otherwise see, but I feel like it's a good way to just not always think about yourself and pray for my, you know, daily things. You got to pray for other people and you got to pray for the people that need it. And pray for your enemies. The first time that that concept ever really grasped me was the idea of like, your disposition towards somebody is going to change drastically when you pray for them. Yeah. Um, so you might have things you're against, things you think they've wronged you or whatever. Um, Christians or non-Christians, probably more often or not, are the people we would consider our enemies are probably people in our own church um, or somebody who's, as you always point out, somebody who's probably just like you. <laughs> um, but it's unbelievable the amount of times that once you start praying for that person, yeah. Your disposition towards them changes, it's true. right? It does. Because you can't, you can't pray for somebody and still hate them. You can't pray for somebody and still wish ill to them, which is what you are doing when you're thinking about thinking angrily about somebody. Once you start praying for them, you start seeing them. I think a little bit like God sees them, right? You're like you're starting to see the curtain torn away. You're starting to see them. They're flawed. They're, they're flawed people, need, just need, like us. Exactly, in need of grace, just like you are. And it builds the relationship without them even knowing. The vibrant prayer people, if we can all become that, I think you're going to see a lot less division, a lot less drama, a lot less strife within our church buildings, which will lead to a lot more activity and evangelism. You got more to say on the prayer. I love it. I just wanted to say when you're praying for them, I think it's also key to say that you're not praying that they change their mind or that they start seeing the way that you see something. I think the prayer for them would be, praying that if there's any struggles in their life, like you want to pray in a way that you would almost pray for yourself. Like you want to pray and not a, a selfish way, but pray that they're, they're doing well, that they're getting through the day at work, that if there's any stress in their life, like you want to pray well for them, not just, Oh, I pray that they change their mind. And you know, like you want to actively pray in a way and you can just feel it kind of, as you said, like melt away and it'll change. Amen. All right. So the last point a healthy Christian is actively working on their sanctification. A healthy Christian understands that they're saved by grace, that they're justified by the work of Christ and Christ alone. But sanctification is our part. A work of the spirit in us, actively conforming us to the image of the son. Obviously we don't do the work, but we put the effort in to become sanctified. What I mean by that is I think people need to be ruthlessly identifying sin in their own lives and working to stop it. Take account of your life today. Take account of your life a year ago 
and be aware of where you need work. The easiest way to find, to find out where you need work, ask people, ask your spouse, ask your children, ask your close friends, ask the rebels. We'll tell you, no, just kidding. Um, ask people who you know and who you trust and who know you well enough to be honest with you. Because to be honest, nobody wants a yes man. Nobody wants somebody who's just going to say, oh, I know you're great. Because that doesn't help you in any way, shape, or form. You need somebody who's willing to be encouraging and critical of you in a loving manner so that you can actively work on these things to overcome them. Which also means we have to be people who are willing to seek that out and willing to be held accountable to those people to do that, which I think is why church membership is so vital because we've actively given that role to the elders in our church, to the deacons in our church, to the pastor in our church to do that. But like, it doesn't have to be them. You don't always, it doesn't have to just be your pastor that's holding you accountable. In fact, he doesn't have enough time to do that. So likely your best bet is to find other people because the beauty of the church is that we're a family of people who there's almost guaranteed, depending in most churches, there's somebody who's gone through the exact same thing that you're going through 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, that can help walk you through what you're going through, but can also identify the same things and the same landmines you're about to step on. It also means we have to be people who are stop defending our sin. Stop making excuses for it. Stop saying, well, I only did this because this and this and this happened. I only failed here because, you know, my electric guitar player didn't hit the note correctly. Um, not that that's sin, but I mean, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Stop. Your reaction to it could be. <laughs> Mine often is. Um, but I mean, like people, people <laughs> insight, uh, but no, be people who are, aren't excuse riddling. Be people who are quick to listen, quick to hear, quick to try to understand, very, very slow to defend or to make excuses for anything. In fact, we should never make excuses for anything. But it means we need to be actively working on those those things in our lives. So And actively working on them through some of the things we've mentioned, right? With yeah, coming absolutely. to That's, the word in prayer. And, exactly. Yeah. Nice tie in there. For me, I'll just be upfront. I can say things very bluntly to people. It's something I I didn't know about myself, but then was revealed to me over time just because People get my text and be like, man, why are you upset? I'd be like, I didn't even know I was upset. I'm not upset. I'm just the way I, I talk, the way I speak, oftentimes cannot be gentle at all. It can come across very, sometimes demeaning, sometimes angry, sometimes harshly, because I just don't think of it. I just speak and my tone of voice just comes out off in a negative way. And people often laugh when I get serious. It seems like I'm angry. Um, so that's something I'm working on. I'm working actively to be nicer in the way I say things. Still saying truth, still speaking everything that I'm doing accurately, but being gentler in my speech, being softer in my speech, being somebody who's less quick to jump in on something, less quick to criticize, more quick to encourage. And that's something you've helped me with. It's something other people in my life who have, I've asked have helped me with. And sometimes I've been called on. Sometimes I fail. Sometimes I'm, I'm getting, but I can see myself getting better at it. It's something I'm, I'm actively working on. Hopefully that will be something a year from now or six months from now that won't even be an issue. I'll be working on some other big problem in my life. Yeah. But I mean, it's something that I'm working on. And I think that's, um, not to make myself the hero in the, in the circumstances, but I'm just giving you an example. We need to start being people who identify our sin before other people identify the sin in us. And we need to be people who are actively working on overcoming those things because 
the goal here, the reason we're not saved and just taken home right away is to build the kingdom and to be sanctified to the image of Christ. The things that are coming up in your life, the things that you're going through, the things that you're struggling with are all put in place so that God can bring you through those things to make you more like his son for his glory and for your good. And your good ultimately is that you become more and more like the son. And the more and more we look and reflect Jesus, the better it is for us and the better it is for the world around us because he is the only light in this world. And the more it reflects off of us into the world, the better it is. So we need to be people who are ruthless about becoming more and more like Christ. That means being willing to be changed, means willing to be proven wrong, means willing to be held accountable, means willing to be rebuked if rebuke is necessary. People who are willing to let all those things happen. Once we get to that point, I think we see real change. Yep. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the five traits of a healthy Christian. I promise you won't have too many more weeks without P-Nate. Maybe I'll just take off him and Heather can just rock off a couple of podcasts because she was great. Thanks for doing this, H. Um, Again, remember to like, share, share us on Facebook. Check out the other podcasts if you haven't already. And once again, this is Pootie and the Rebels. Have a great one, guys.